Give the final fist bump. Hold a kiss, dap it up, and grab a seat. Yeah? That's good. That works. All right. Great. Glad you guys like each other. That's good. Well, let's take a moment of uh, quiet, and then we can jump into our passage today. Let's take a moment of quiet to just let our attentions, our spirits, catch up to our bodies in this room and be prepared to encounter the Lord with our whole selves and receive whatever he has for us today. Father in heaven, we choose to be here as an act of faithfulness to experience your presence and your love, to be reminded of your commitment to us and that how much you are for us in every way. May we receive that with open hands. May we be humble and teachable and um, receive whatever encouragement or challenge or embrace you have for us today. We trust you. In Jesus' name I pray. All right, I invite you to stand as a gesture of reverence for the reading of the scriptures today. We're back in Mark, Mark 6, verses 14 through 29. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some were saying, John the baptizer has been raised from the dead, and for this reason, these powers are at work in him. But others said, it is Elijah, and others said, it is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had sent men who arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. For John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he protected him. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his courtiers and, I read that word a lot, and realize I don't know how to say it out loud, and officers, and for the leaders of Galilee. When his daughter Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it. And he solemnly swore to her, whatever you ask me, I will give to you, even half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, What should I ask for? And she replied, The head of John the baptizer. Immediately she rushed back to the king and requested, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was deeply grieved, yet out of regard for his oaths and for the guests, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent a soldier of the guard with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about it, they came and took his body and laid it in the tomb. The word of the Lord. Thank you. You may grab a seat. So we are back in the Gospel of Mark. And the joy and challenge of going verse by verse and skipping none of it is we come upon a passage like this that is quite challenging. Not the most uplifting on first reading. Um, and I know that the past couple weeks have had some heaviness to it. It reminds me of the time in several summers ago, my last church preached a few challenging sermons in a row, and someone came to church that next Sunday and was like, hey man, I'm really hoping for some fluff today. And I'm like, well, the passage is actually going to be... And so here we are. This is the passage that we have, and we love that uh, going right through the Gospels, we are forced to encounter it. So 
Uh, let's talk about what we're going to do today. Um, next slide, my man. We're talking about the church's prophetic role. You remember last week we did the Pentecost Sunday, and in it, uh, Peter, in his sermon, quotes from the prophet Joel, and the prophet Joel says this, that one day God is saying that even on my servants, many translations say slaves, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. And Peter's saying the gift of the spirit and the birth of the church leads to the spirit being available for all people that would join the people of God, and they would prophesy. And when we talk about being able to prophesy, this is not so much an emphasis on foretelling the future, like what is going to come about, or even the ability, some Christians would say, to have unique access to very narrow and specific information that they then can give on behalf of God to a person. I imagine this call to be much broader than that, saying that the whole church now has the spirit that was once given to singular people to speak on behalf of God as a member to God's people. So they're a prophet both speaks from outside of God's people to God's people, but he himself or they themselves are also of God's people so that message applies to them. And he's saying that every spirit-filled and spirit-led person gets this role, this unique vocation to be God's mouthpiece for his people and for the world. And now, because of that, John the Baptist, Jesus says, is one of the greatest, he says he's the greatest person born of a woman pre-Jesus, pre-kingdom, which means he is like the greatest prophet. So in light of that, we're going to kind of see John the Baptist as a great example for the church's prophetic role. My slide going off the screen there. You can guess that's the word says role. So here's the thing we're going to break down. John the Baptist, as a prophetic voice, he has the content of his message, the audience of his message, which is King Herod, and the results of that message, of him embracing the prophetic role. And I trust that this will be a good guide for us as the church to live into our vocation to be God's prophet, God's mouthpiece, to speak on behalf of God to God's people and to the world. And there's lots of challenges and thorny topics and difficulties with that. So let's jump right in, talking about the content. We need to get the whole content here. We've got two sections conveniently highlighted in, in yellow so that we don't get a piece of it, which is the church is prone to do. It says, for John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So let's be crystal clear. John, as God's chosen prophet, is speaking to Herod about Herod's romantic and intimate choices. Because we have some youngins in the room, and I'm not sure the levels to which parents have addressed frankly that topic. I'm choosing to use the word romantic or intimate. But I'm actually talking about the full-blown thing, okay? I got no fear to talk about it, but I'm respectful to parents and children and the timing of everything. So if you hear me talk about romantic choices or intimate choices, that's what I'm talking about, okay? So John is challenging Herod about his romantic life, and he says, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. He's pulling that straight out of Leviticus. Let's go to my next slide, and then we're going to pop right back. From Leviticus... 18 and 20, uh, here's what the law says. Do not have sexual relations with your brother's wife. That would dishonor your brother. In Leviticus 20, if a man marries his brother's wife, it is an act of impurity. He has dishonored his brother. So both those chapters have a lot, series of 
commands, they're very long, that is basically saying, of all the persons and relationships and beings and statuses and possible circumstances in which you could romantically or intimately express yourself, here are all the no's, and you can instead direct that in the context of a permanent heterosexual marriage between a man and a woman. And so John identifies that Herod has uh, betrayed that, and he's addressing that. And so let's just take a step back to name kind of the church plows in sometimes, fumbling around into a conversation about romantic behaviors without having first a little bit of a theology for it. So I'm going to try to give a bird's eye view of that. Human beings, in contrast to animals and in contrast to angels, are given a special status as God's image bearers. And so we have all the fleshly appetites that animals have in the body, but we also are given a capacity to experience and relate to God's presence and to respond to his presence. And so he grants us the same appetites and desires that animals have, but then instructs us to have a capacity to rise above those, to transcend those, and direct those appropriately in order to experience and relate to and obey and respond to God's voice. That is the call. So then, of course, having those desires and appetites, they can never be fulfilled by anything in this world. And that's a good thing. The reason for that is it drives us, every time we experience appetite or desire according to our flesh, to remember that the source of that and the goal of that is not in this physical world, but is God himself. And so human beings are then instructed to order those desires in a way that honors God and honors who we are as his people. And by, by putting the nuclearly strong romantic desires that we all have into the context of a permanent lifelong marriage between a man and a woman, that is a reflection of God's relationship with his people. It is a permanent commitment. It is an exclusive commitment. It doesn't break, and it is fruitful. It bears fruit that will last. And so by and modeling and embracing and celebrating that vision for sexuality marriage and purposely directing our appetites that direction, we get to reflect that that's who God is and that's who we are. Very bird's eye view. Step back to my caveat, which I need to say every time I talk about this kind of stuff. This is the beginning of a conversation. I say it all the time. I'm not the kind of preacher that presumes or expects everyone's going to agree with me about everything today. It's always open for a conversation. So if I strike you, it's kind of on you to live into that and challenge me, and we can talk about it together. So um, that is the message that John's saying to Herod. But yet, I love this bit here that Herod kind of liked John. So clearly, John presented that message with some level of grace and winsomeness and patience. It wasn't like, I'll just speak the truth and I tell it like it is. That's how some Christians like to do it and then just drop a hammer on anyone who has any sort of failure or weakness, especially in this area, which I'll talk about in a little bit. But instead, John says he repeatedly did it. He had been telling Herod this. It wasn't a one and done. He didn't go in with the Mike Tyson haymaker and then run because I just told him the truth and I did my job. He pleaded. He tried to engage with him. He met him on his terms. And, to, and in a way in which Herod kind of respected him, liked him, was perplexed and challenged by him, but he enjoyed him. Somehow, John was able to both challenge Herod frankly and yet winsomely win Herod's heart without uh, forsaking the call to transformation. And this, 
that dual tension is the whole content. And what I observe is that every generation of God's people, biblically all the way until now, there is a fluctuation of that. Heavy strong on the restrictions and the prohibitions and the condemnation for those who are not living in line with God's romantic vision, followed by an overcorrection of the pendulum that leaves all kinds of room for celebrating and affirming everything. And there's three recent examples in the American church that I think uh, kind of show this. First, about 60 to 70 years ago, the thought of having divorce in the church was unthinkable. Wasn't okay at all. And that's rooted in a biblical vision that God hates divorce, he's not for it. He wants permanent marriages to reflect his permanent and exclusive commitment to us. But the reality is, Jesus himself gives reason that divorce needs to happen as a concession for when hardness of heart takes hold of one of the members of a marriage and harm happens. And so the church started rightfully overcorrecting, saying too many women in particular had been abused and stuck in abusive, harmful, adulterous marriages and and enduring undue pain. And pastors and church leaders were telling them to stay in their marriage and love their husbands anyway, even as they faced that abuse. The church finally was like, that's not right. We need to make a concession. In a world filled with sin and pain, there needs to be room and a choice to divorce, to go against God's ideal vision as a way to, uh, to, 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 to rescue women in particular that were being harmed. And so rightfully so, there was a turning of the tide. But then... Once you open the floodgate, there became all kinds of reason for all kinds of excuses, and eventually we get to now where divorce has been so as common, almost, as the world, and there's really any reason. If this person just doesn't fulfill my desires, doesn't give me my level of happiness I prefer, that is now reason for me to say that's not the one and therefore I'm out. You see then, there's an overcorrection there. There's the winsome, want to be liked and approved by all people, or the overly heavy challenge. But the church's prophetic role is both. Another issue this happens with is purity culture. You heard that term, purity culture? So the 80s, 90s, 90s especially, 2000s, the church rightfully pushed so hard for teenagers to save themselves for marriage. Good news, true news, biblical news. Sex is so powerful, romantic desires are so powerful They need to be channeled inside a relationship that can handle that kind of power, which is marriage. And so rightfully, well-meaning church leaders are like, we got to help protect our teens for this. But man, it was harmful, the manner in which they did it, by presenting, like, if you do this, you will get, like, unreal levels of fantasy intimacy to come. So there's a false promise there. An unfair amount of pressure, especially on teenage girls, and not enough on teenage boys, and teenage girls become responsible for teenage boys' self-control, and then an overly uh, um, heavy burden on perfection with this, so that if anyone messes up, especially girls, there's no path of renewal and restoration back, and that has dropped a hammer on people. I now, these people that were raising this are now my peers, and I'm watching it wreak havoc in their marriages, and it's sad. They didn't have to do that. Then, though, there's now church leaders that are overcorrecting and saying that's so bad. Actually, maybe they would say there's a problem with the biblical romantic ethic. 
and we need to throw that whole thing out. And so there's an embrace of what's called sex positivity, which is kind of like the secular vision of consentment. If we consent, more is okay. Let's, let, let's kind of loosen things up a little bit. And I think, again, it's either too heavy and hard and unhealthy and demanding and with no grace and patience, or open up the floodgates and let it roll. Same thing once more with same-sex relationships. The church has done so much undue, unfair harm to people who experience same-sex desire over the past hundred years. It's been insane. I've had too many people in my ministry, when I first meet them, come to me and need to say, I like you, I like our conversations, but before we go further, I need to tell you this truth about me so that if you're going to reject me, you can go ahead and do that now before I invest more. Only people who experience same-sex attraction have done that to me. And that's an indicator of how much they were harmed by the church, that their particular proclivities or desires were elevated over against anybody else's. There was no room for them to explore who they are in the church and for us to patiently walk with them. There's no room to consider that there's nothing wrong with them for having the attraction and desire and that God may have some challenges about how we deal with it and let's sit together and think about that. And no room for grace that if that person goes through phases where they're all over the place, we are right here and not going anywhere. Instead, it was hammer time. You're condemned. You're going to unhealthy therapy and camp that's going to beat this out of you and we're going to kick you out and you're going to leave with the impression that something is permanently wrong with you. That is a lie. And there's been so much harm to that community. Then, though, you have a tide of the, a turning of the tide. On the path of repentance of that harm, we go to the fact of now being willing to throw out 1,960 years of global Christian history after all the Bible to then say maybe all of that was wrong and we should be more open to affirm, celebrate, bless same-sex unions on the same level otherwise. And I don't think it's there. I wrestled with it. I read a lot. thought about it. I could be wrong. I'm open to the fact I might be wrong. I think that that's a, a misstep by the, a, a, a significantly large portion of the American church. And I'm nervous because nothing I've ever said in my ministry has caused more uh, adverse reactions than that. I've had face palms, grunts, audible groans, people leaving. Doing the best I can. I might be wrong. I'm open to the fact I might be wrong. But I think that is, again, a way the church has not done both. To hold to an ethic that is biblical, but leave loads of grace as we navigate it and plenty of forgiveness, knowing that every single person in this room is romantically broken. All of us have a lack and a brokenness and a failure and a need for grace, a plank in our own eye, if you will, and we all need to lock arms on the way to receiving grace from Jesus in this process. But the church's prophetic role is that both and, grace and truth, clinging to the truth, but always welcoming to be transformed by Jesus. And if you're not thinking amen, I love you to death. I'm so glad you're here. Please stay. <laughs> and you are not alone. And you have probably reasons for resisting that, and, I, and I, I, probably, I hold to them too. So let's talk about the audience of his message, because this is crucial. The audience of John the Baptist's message. The question I want to think about right now is, what truth do we owe the people of God versus those who, by choice, do not belong to the people of God? 
And this is important that Herod would have identified himself as a member of the people of God. He was seen as the king of the Jews. That is, he's a part of that by name. Now, he lived crazy if you know Herod's life, but by name, he is that. And so the question then that the church as a prophet that speaks truth, when you're speaking to a person who identifies as a part of the church, as a part of the people of God, then the operative question is, are we reflecting what the king wants us to do? Is our behavior and our ethics matching up with who God says that we are? And then the challenge is to wrestle with that. We already agree that God is king, that Jesus is Lord, and we want to obey him. You wouldn't be in the room if you didn't want that. So we're talking about that. All those instructions I just gave to you, because you are Christian, most of you in this room are Christians. And if you're not, this is a family meeting. That's how I approach this. You're welcome to the family table. You will, at the family table, discover what the family talks about. And then you can decide if you want to be a part of it. But I'm not directing this to non-Christian people. So Christians, the question is, are, is, your, is your behavior matching up to the people of God? And the prophet then is thus a covenant enforcer. John the Baptist is saying we have the law that instructs our, plan, our, our, our purposes and our behaviors. And he's saying to Herod, you yourself identify as a person under this law. I see a gap here. Are you willing to consider that and repent? And so that is the truth that we would owe to Christians. And in our SFGs and on a Sunday morning, we're talking about if we identify as a Christian, what does that mean for our behavioral choices? But what do you do for people who don't identify as Christians? We have examples of that in Acts. When Paul goes before governors and kings of Rome, many of them live crazy lives. None of them would identify as a Christian. And notice that Paul's never trying to convince them about their behavior. He's not managing their behavior. One of them even says, if I keep talking to you, Paul, you might persuade me to become a Christian. He's like, yes, that's right. That's my goal. And so then the question we would talk about with people who don't identify as a Christian is not their behavior. Leave their behavior alone. The question is, who do they think Jesus is? How did they get there? We're after a total reorientation of their life and purpose and direction. We're not after behavioral management. When you start with behavioral management, that immediately puts a sense of guilt and fear and shame and rejection and exclusion. There's no room for dialogue. And it's, and it's now, that, those are terrible motivators. And then they don't get to discover the grace of Jesus. The behavioral calls towards Christians make no sense outside of the fact that Jesus has died for us, made us new, made us holy as a pure gift, and now he says, go live like that. I can sum up all the New Testament commands about how we should behave as, like, basically be who you, you already are. God has made you holy. Let's try to be that. And that doesn't make any sense if a person has deliberately decided they don't want to be a Christian. And so what I think is a mistake is that once Christians say, okay, I got the biblical romantic ethic, now I'm going to go try to make social and cultural and political demands on people who don't follow Jesus to embrace my romantic behavioral ethic. And I strongly resist that because they don't want to follow Jesus. Let them be who they want to be. I want to direct the question to, why don't you consider following Jesus? And if along that line they would say, well, what would that mean for my romantic life? I was like, let's talk about it. Here's what it's meant for mine. 
that my romantic life has been a source of lots of tears in my faith because it's been an area that God has made me holy and transformed me. It's been hard, but it's fulfilling and it's worth it, and I think there's good reason for the injunctions that the Bible gives us towards our romantic lives. It's worth receiving that instruction, and many secular people might feel the same. The early church grew in part because many felt a freedom and a liberation, especially women. The fact that Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 7 that the man's body belongs to the wife that was revolutionary. That was unheard of in Greco-Roman ethical speeches. And women in the Greco-Roman world ran to the church for that reason. They felt a liberation and an empowerment that their bodies mattered on their own. And so the same way now, there's books coming out by secular people who are saying the secular romantic ethic has been harmful. It has been dissatisfying. It is not enough. And the church can say, we have a bigger vision for that if we would not try to control and manage people and instead invite them compellingly to see a different way. And so be mindful. Who are you talking to? And go there with them on that. I had people on my street in Cincinnati for eight years who did not follow Jesus and blatantly went against what I thought to be the Christian romantic ethic. Guess how many times I talked about their romantic choices with them? Zero. I prayed over their cancer, I helped them do yard work, we exchanged gifts, we had a good life, we talked to each other well, he cried to me as he invited me into his life, and I never once talked to him about that. He has no idea what my opinion is about that. Maybe he can guess, but we didn't have to talk about that, because I wanted to direct the question to, what does he think about Jesus, and trying to give him a compelling vision for why it may be worth following him. Then behavior matters. All right, let's talk about the results of this. Immediately, the king sent a soldier of the guard with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So here you have what Jesus says to be the greatest man born of a woman before the kingdom. Therefore, a top prophet. He obeyed the call. He did what he was supposed to do. And what did that result in? Imprisonment and beheading. We need this passage. I need this passage. Because it doesn't matter how many times I'm confronted by this reality, we still turn to the world, forget about it, and presume and embrace a soft prosperity gospel that imagines if only I make some good choices, pray right, obey God, then it will work out in my favor. I shall then be happy. I shall then be fulfilled. And most of us know we're smart enough not to fully embrace the full-blown prosperity gospel, but yet it hovers beneath when we look back on our lives with grief and disappointment and wonder, why me? And yet, you have the greatest prophet ever, and that's the result. We have to be confronted with the reality that the promises of God, there's no promise that our life will be filled without trouble. Instead, we have promises that the world is filled with trouble, that sin, Satan, and death are still present, and what happens when faithfulness meets a world marred by sin, Satan, and death? Faithfulness is crucified, is what happens. So we need not be surprised if the result of our faithfulness may not be goodness, or approval, or temporary comfort. And we need to recognize that we do get joy in this life, but it comes when we hold our temporary dissatisfactions and sufferings and lack in view of the eternal life to come. When that is held in view, 
we then can embrace a life with joy and peace that transcends our circumstances because we know that in the end we have eternal vindication. We will be with the presence of God and he will embrace us permanently. And so John the Baptist is entrusting his soul to tell the truth and to receive God's mercy. Will we do that as well? And will we also receive John's message ourselves about our own romantic weaknesses, our own brokenness and our intimacy? And I would think that the same idolatry of happiness and temporary immediate comfort would prevent us as a church both from embracing John's prophetic voice for fear that the world would reject us or receiving John's call for fear of going without full romantic satisfaction. The idolatry of temporary and immediate gratification and happiness and security gets in the way of both. You follow me? It will be hard in a culture that is filled with vitriol and strong opinions about romantic life to hold the ground and say, we are beholden to something larger than what's right now. I'm, I'm at the mercy of God, of Scripture, of the church. It feels arrogant to me to think that I can transcend above that and disagree and say that maybe I have the key to real interpretation on this. We are beholden to that, and if we speak that, we will, get, we will have some hard times. There will be some rejection, both from strong conservative Christians that have no patience and grace for weakness and from those who want to be more affirming and celebratory. It will be painful and difficult to do both. And then, more importantly, to receive the challenge from John. Because I want to reiterate, everybody is romantically broken, dissatisfied, and has a, a weakness there. The, ex the examples I gave are just more obvious expressions of uh, the weakness that we all carry. But that's okay. And I'm able to say that because we are not who we are because we've been romantically perfect or pure, but because God has died for us. He broke into this world. He took all the sin, all the shame, all the rejection, all the failures of us to speak the truth, all the failures of us to live the truth, all the pain that we have endured of what people have done to us, said to us, touched us in ways they shouldn't have, and all the ways that we have done that too. He has taken all that on his body and died on the cross by that, by those hands, so that he could conquer those things and say, you are not defined by what you've done, what's been done to you, what you thought about this morning, the choice you will make this week. You are defined by God's choice to love you. And so if you heard yourself in any of the categories I mentioned or didn't mention, you need to hear above all else that God delights in your life. He is glad you are who you are. He wakes up in the morning glad to be your father and glad that you are his son or daughter, and he is ready for a life with you. And it will be a life of long transformation. This won't be immediate. I remember this girl from our college ministry came to us in a mess. And she has in one of those dark relationships that took hold of her for like two years. If you've been in one of those, you know how hard it is to get out. And we could have said, you've got to get out of that immediately if you want to join in. Or we say, let's follow Jesus together and see what he has for us. And it took two years for her to finally feel the courage to break it off with that person. Two years, but she walked with us, and she was following Jesus with us, and he was transforming so many parts of her life before he got to the romantic part. And we waited, 
and we prayed, and we affirmed her as God's child as she struggled. And eventually she broke free, and now she's married to a Christian man, and they have a child on the way. It's not sons and, and roses and frolicking in the daffodils. I know them. It's painful. Anyone that has a decent marriage knows it came by way of tears, man. That's how they live. It's hard. But they are trying to reflect the faithful life, and God is blessing them with transformation even as they struggle and are with tears. That's the kind of community I want to be, welcoming and transforming. We are all going on the way of Jesus. If you want to lock arms and be transformed too, we need help. Please come help. Come follow him with us. That's who we want to be with grace and with honesty about ourselves and about the world. Will we be patient with each other and with ourselves to receive the mercy of God and follow along with him? If we have the courage, I trust there's joy and peace on the other side and faithfulness that Jesus will embrace and vindicate us on the last day. Let's pray. Lord, have mercy. May you meet our weakness with grace and embrace. May you forgive us for our repetitive weaknesses. May you overcome the voices of shame and condemnation and hatred. And may you give us the courage to be patient and wait alongside each other as we receive your mercy. May you give us the courage to receive the truth and to speak it when called. To be a church that welcomes all on the way to receiving mercy from you. We need your help. We are at the cross clinging to your blood to save us, to rescue us, to identify us as holy, and to affirm that we are your people even when we fail in our week. We cling to that message. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I'm going to talk about the great cost of that with communion. We take communion, we trust that this is physical because God himself took on a body. He had the same appetites and desires that all of us have. Just as strong. He was fully human. He was not Superman. Those were strong, and he submitted them on the way of faithfulness to, Jesus, to God, and he took on the cross the pain of our own physical lives and the choices we made in this body as a way to remind us that we are his people by gift of his very life. This is how much it cost him to love us, and it's a, a worthy cost for him to pay, a cost he was glad to pay in order to receive us back in his arms again. And so when we take communion, this is an expression of faith and confidence, that who God made us to be is based on the blood, not by our choices. He's not make us his own because we've done it well or not well, because we made some good choices recently versus bad ones. He's with us because he has died for us and counted us worthy to be his children again by the, his own love. And so when we take this, we take this as faith to receive that love again. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread now.
In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Listen to where we just put our hope. Not in our behavior or perfection, but as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim to our own weary hearts and to the world the Lord's death as our only hope, and we do that until he comes to finish the job and restore us once for all.